So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Today on the podcast we're going to be talking about something a little bit different and I don't mind saying something I'm quite excited to be discussing. Um, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Liz Armitage-Chan. Liz is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia and she worked previously as an anaesthetist in the referral setting including here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. Um, But Liz has now followed more of an educational path, and she's a lecturer in veterinary education here at the RBC and was recently appointed as Director of Education in our Clinical Sciences and Services Department. So thanks very much for for joining me today, Liz. I'm just smirking, actually, because I think that's the longest intro I've had. (laughs) But anyway. Um, So look, Liz, today we're going to talk about an area which... um, I think it's fair to say so far has had kind of very little airplay publicly in the veterinary world. Um, And I'm really glad to be able to use this podcast to at least kind of start to introduce some of the concepts and the discussions um, to our listeners. And also because, you know, thankfully the podcast is starting to be listened to across the world, if you like. And I think it's really great that we can start having this conversation. Um, So basically we're going to be talking about the role of um, so-called human factors and non-technical skills um, in maximising patient safety and also, uh, you know, kind of modern concepts of what we mean by um, professionalism. So I guess I'd like to start with human factors and sort of where better than really by asking you to please explain what we mean by human factors and essentially what relevance do they have when it comes to patient safety? Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, Human factors were defined um, by a guy called Martin Bromley, who set up the Clinical Human Factors Group. And he defines them in such an excellent way, I always steal his definition, (laughs) because it is basically, to paraphrase, everything that makes us different from predictable machines. So if you were to bring up the scenario, I guess, first of all, of, of being of not having any human factors, then we would all be able to work perfectly all the time and all the knowledge that we have would always be there and all the skills that we've generated through our education and our careers would always be immediately to hand. But real life is that sometimes we're tired, sometimes we're stressed, sometimes we're distracted, sometimes we have other things going on. Um, especially in medicine and in veterinary medicine, we can be emotionally attached to the patient. We have the stresses of the client's expectations on us as well. And all of these impact on our ability to work. So to sum up, they they include things like stress, emotion, fatigue, being distracted, but also conversely fixating so much on a task that you ignore everything else going on. And that would include not only that another patient might be crashing, but also that something might be going on with your own patient Mm. or the passage of time has elapsed more than you expect, for example. So all of those things are classified as human factors because they are what makes us human. Um, Traditionally, the link to patient safety hasn't been recognised at all. And even in some ways... it. It's had the opposite connotation with it. If you think about um, the way some people think about stress, people think that actually I can't perform well or to the best of my ability unless I do have that little bit of an edge, a bit of a, of a stress to keep you excited and to focus your attention. Um, and that's true. Um, so it's definitely not a, a complete one-way street. But increasingly what's been recognised in medicine 
and masses of this has come from the airline industry, um, is that all of these things are there and we have to recognise them and recognise the detrimental impacts they have on our performance. So for us as vets and for doctors who work with patients, um, the effects that these can have on the outcome of the patient are huge. Um, and in a scenario like an operating theatre or an emergency room um, or when you're anaesthetising a patient, if you're stressed or upset or distracted or very, very tired, then that can have quite profound effects and it, it's, it's been shown to increase um, medical errors um, and also contribute to patient death. So, um, so I guess the, the first kind of hurdle um, is really to acknowledge the existence of human factors and the fact that they can impact on your performance. And I guess possibly is it fair to say that in years gone by it's been a bit of a kind of taboo thing and Absolutely. By, by acknowledging them you're almost sort of showing fallibility or insecurity or something yeah. taboo rather there's, than actually... Definitely. There's so much wrapped up in this and um, there was a fantastic paper that I quote very, very often when I'm talking about this which somebody interviewed... Um, a lot of pilots and people who work in the airline industry and then they took the same set of interviews and questionnaires and repeated them in hospitals and they asked anaesthetists and surgeons and paediatric doctors what they thought about human factors and what they thought the implications were for things like stress on their own performance and the performance of their teams. Um, and basically the pilots were revealed as being extremely aware of the negative effects of stress and fatigue and the healthcare staff collectively were, were a long way behind. Yeah. So, but it's coming, um, and it's a cultural change, because I think that we've all been part of conversations that involve bragging about how many hours of sleep we haven't had, mm. and how much coffee we need, mm. and um, how busy we are, and how many cases we have, and all that kind of stuff. So it needs to change from being a bit of a badge of bravado mm. to um, an acknowledgement that actually it does have an impact on our it's performance. Almost, it's almost been a passage of right, hasn't it, really? That, it know, has. It has. Yeah. yeah. And um, because I guess the one of the other things that's happening at the moment in kind of and largely is being allowed to happen by the sort of growth of social media, really, is that there's a lot more discussion about in the veterinary world as well as in human medicine about things like compassion fatigue and essentially the um the consequences that the veterinary profession can have on individuals but a lot of that conversation is very much focused about the effects on those people but i haven't really read anybody saying oh and by the way it can also because we're in this condition it can also impact the patients so there's kinds of two layers there isn't it there? there's yeah. sort of actually acknowledging what it does to the staff and there's also the impact on the patients and, there is. and both are equally important there is and a, and a really great example of that is um, what you do if you've been up all night or if you've had a very upsetting incident early on in your day. So, for example, if you're involved in an accident that leads to a patient death, I think the traditional approach is being get back up on the horse, mm. carry on with your next mm. case um, and get on with it. And there's certainly a movement to think, actually, that probably isn't the best thing for you, but almost definitely isn't the best thing for your next patient. Yeah. Um, and so trying to think about how we look after people that have been involved in um, a significant incident um, in, their, in their clinical day that might negatively impact on their work. 
and what we do about um, the rest of their day and looking after them. Some of the hospitals in the US describe um, kind of like a code team, but, but a code team not for patients, Excellent. but for clinicians, yeah, yeah. that if you're involved in something, then there's a sort of code blue or some other colour announcement that goes over the, the loudspeakers and this team of people that, are, that have training in um, just going through errors and, and going through um, cases that have, that have resulted in a death with the clinician um, can then help that clinician move on and, and, ha- and, and remain in a positive frame of mind because there's all sorts, as you correctly said, that can happen to your own performance and your own knock-on ability um, and your own mental state and, and health and things like that following following an upsetting patient incident, but um, but definitely a negative effect on your consequent patients. So it isn't just about you know taking the rest of the day off and not going back to your patients, because obviously sometimes it does help to carry on, um, but it's just being aware that it isn't just a foregone conclusion that you should carry on and that maybe you know somebody else looking after your next patient for you could be helpful. And, and I think, like you say, um, you know, that a lot of that comes from, from the shift in culture, doesn't it? Because Absolutely, unless yeah. there is a, a sort of broad-based uh, change yes. in approach, it's, it's difficult. And, and also making the time to tend to those individuals. And I think, again, it's easy to just kind of have a quick 10-second, are you okay, and carry yeah. on with your day. Yeah. Um, I, I guess this is a bit of a cynical question in a way, but I was thinking whilst you were saying that, that um, obviously some of this has come from a slowly growing movement in, in human medicine as well to to uh, acknowledge things like human factors and, and impact. And I suppose cynically I would ask you the question, do you think some of that has stemmed from litigation in people where mistakes have happened and human factors may have been highlighted as being potentially the reason why an error occurred? And through fear of litigation, someone's going, oh, we better pay attention to these things? Or is that entirely guess, cynical? Guess, no, no, it could have done. Um, we tend to think of, of the litigation culture as being a North American thing. I don't know whether that's correct or incorrect, if, if you have the actual facts. Um, and a lot of the human factors and the, the non-technical skills work has come out of the UK. A lot of it has stemmed from a very highly publicised um, patient who died who shouldn't have died because mm. she was very healthy and her husband was very interested, her husband was Martin Bromley or is Martin Bromley who I talked about at the beginning and he was very interested in following this up and improving human factors awareness in medical training and was very um, benevolent I guess in, in the sense that he didn't want anybody told off he did ask for an external audit into his wife's death, but was very um, adamant that that wasn't because he wanted to blame somebody or he wanted somebody to have um, to lose their job or to be sued. He just wanted to improve awareness and make sure it didn't happen again. So, yes, I guess to answer your question, it might come from a fear of litigation, but that isn't apparent in, in a lot of the work that's written about, about this. I was just I was just being devil's advocate. I think it's I think it's quite, I think um, I mean listening to to his wife's management, um, even as a veterinary ECC person, you listen to it and you think, really, you know, how could that have carried on for all that time? And, yes, I mean, just you know, um, and yet and yet, I guess what it showed me was how things can get swept along in the moment of the sort of situational chaos and stuff and. And actually, it kind of had an impact on me to a degree because I took away from that and try and, you know, when I'm now involved in the clinic and stuff, I do try and 
make sure, probably better than I used to before, that things get sorted rationally, quickly, rather than before maybe that you know it's easy to just get swept along in this kind mm. of uh, so i mean because i think most people listening to that would have been like really yes i mean obviously um, for for people who who aren't aware um the elaine bromley case involved two or three very highly skilled consultants um in a very well equipped hospital and so the conclusions of that where you could not have had better individuals involved or better facilities available but it was a series of of errors as you say and a a series of events that led up um, to the patient's death that included things like fixation error so the consultants were very fixated on intubating the patient who was very difficult to intubate and was becoming hypoxic and it's so classic. I can, as you said, you, you can see it in, in ourselves and I can see it in myself that I've, I've persisted with tasks because I've believed that it was beneficial for the patient to have a certain IV catheter or to have something in epidural or something like that that I've been trying to do. And it's amazing how quickly time passes um, and you forget to keep checking on the patient. Um, and so human factors was an enormous part of, of what was happening that day to that patient. Um, as well as, as some of the non-technical skills because there was, there was deficits in, in the teamwork and the team structure as well. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why, you know, I'm really glad that we're doing this today is because, for me, a lot of that stuff I've kind of engaged with a little bit more by, you know, just being very interested in human emergency medicine and stuff and because it isn't conversations that we have really been having in the veterinary world much. And so you sort of sound a bit maverick when you come to work and you say blah, blah, blah. Um, because it's, a bit, it's just not something that we're talking about very much at the moment. So I think, I think it's, it's really great. Um, we'll, we'll come at the end and um, talk a little bit more about sort of things that, that we can do in this area. But I wanted to move on and, um, and talk about uh, non-technical skills. Um, and so, again, can you please explain kind of what we mean by non-technical skills and again sort of what relevance they may have when it comes to I want to I want to not just say patient safety I've been thinking about this I want to say patient safety but also patient care yes I think safety just kind of portrays that it's all life and death all the time and actually I think it's probably a bit narrow definitely and, and a lot of the time when I teach about this or I write about it I call it patient safety and outcome because yeah. I think that you, as you say it's not just necessarily the life and death moment although a lot of those events illustrate it very well yeah. so it makes it very clear what we're talking about but I firmly believe that it helps as you say the whole aspect of patient management and can therefore have a contributing effect on what eventually happens to the patient and how well their care is managed from a holistic point of view so non-technical skills are basically everything that allows us to perform our technical skills and to use our knowledge in the most effective way possible both as an individual, but also facilitating everybody within our team to work to their strengths. And I think one of the fascinating things about non-technical skills is the first medical manifestation of them was again drawn up by the anaesthetists, and consultant anaesthetists looked at some critical incidents from their own experience and then as a group analysed them all to come up with a series of behaviours that were absent that contributed to um, a detrimental incident happening. And so you could say that perhaps that set of skills was something that was very specific to anaesthetists. But what's been really exciting is that those of them being rolled out to emergency room clinicians and surgeons and nurses 
with, with very, very minor changes. So it's a real core set of skills that aren't associated with our clinical knowledge or our technical ability, but which really help in our day-to-day -day patient management. And they include things like making the best use of your team, ensuring your communication is appropriate, um, ensuring that you use the most up-to-date knowledge and you keep yourself up-to-date. The best way I think I've had it described is, again, listening to some anaesthetists talking about non-technical skills. They talked about all the skills that they felt they need to run an anaesthesia service appropriately. So a lot of the time when I used to run the anaesthesia service over here, I wasn't day-to-day -day using my knowledge of propofol pharmacology yeah. or my ability to intubate a patient. A lot yeah. of the time I was using skills like knowing what was going on in every operating room in the hospital, yeah. um, knowing which team members were with those cases and which ones might need a little bit of a help, thinking ahead, so having an awareness of... Um, planning and preparing so if, if I knew that somebody was involved with a case that in about an hour's time something something critical was going to happen then I would make sure that somebody was available to to be there or to pop my head around the door and make sure they were all right so it's that real um, set of very people call them generic or transferable skills they're not very specific to being an anaesthetist and certainly I was never taught them as an anaesthesia resident mm. but they they're so relevant to helping the overall running of the hospital and I mean, we'll, <clears throat> we'll talk at the end about sort of education in this area, but one of the things that um, I guess I've, I've found interesting is that I think, as you say, I think those things are not taboo in the way that maybe human factors might be to some people. But I think that, as you say, they're not really things that, again, have had much attention. And you've sort of been left to either have the kind of common sense or the instinctive personality to have those skills to a certain degree and to then be able to implement them. Um, and that there are some people that are brilliant clinicians for their own patients, but really that's kind of where it ends for them and their ability to do more than that is not brilliant. And then there are others who may not be fantastic clinicians, but they're actually very good at non-technical stuff and, and some of the things you mentioned. And I suppose the, the, the Nirvana is the person that is both very good clinically and very good and has very good non-technical skills and I guess a lot of people traditionally have been educated in the kind of clinical aspects and it's this other bit that has sort of been left as a so there are people in positions where they need to be doing a, a lot better from a non-technical skills point of view and they've got to those positions purely because of their kind of clinical qualification and so I think again it's something that um, and certainly you know like you, you mentioned the emergency medicine stuff and when we're busy in the clinic and there's a lot of stuff going on the importance of somebody that, that is able to do this non-technical stuff very well, as well as provide clinical backup, I think that's it's, it's invaluable, and it's, it helps so much. So I'm listening to you thinking, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the classic, the absolute classic example, as you say, is the, is the person who's risen to a position of, of seniority within a group, whether that's within the hospital or within a surgeon group or within an emergency room group or any other specialty for that matter. And they're so good at what they do, but they don't perhaps have the strengths in some of the skills we're talking about. And therefore, if they do something wrong, or if there's something not quite right going on with the patient, it has a massive impact on the rest of the team. And the rest of the team perhaps feel a little bit nervous about mm. performing to their maximum ability. Mm -hmm. If they spot something that's going wrong, they might not volunteer that information because 
the senior person is so senior and so highly respected because of their abilities that it puts everybody else a little bit on edge. And I think one of the the real strengths of non-technical skills and the one that seems to engage people is an ability to create an environment that you work where that hierarchy is flattened and everybody feels that they can contribute and you create an environment um, and a culture within your group that means that anybody can come up to you and say, you know, I'm afraid I've made a mistake or it looks as though you made a mistake um, and that's a very open environment. <laughs> I think those two statements are... <laughs> I think one's going to go better than the other, at least traditionally. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of nurses that, that you know that, that wouldn't that would feel really uncomfortable owning up to making a mistake yeah. because they felt they'd be shouted at, and of course that can have really obvious impact on patient outcome. Um, I talked to a nurse who forgot to do the final scrub on a leg for an orthopaedic surgeon, and she was sitting there sort of inwardly sweating and thinking, when do I point this out? Because, you know, it's going to set everybody back and nobody wants to run late and there's other cases that have to come through. It's going to have, you know, it's not, I'm not only going to upset the surgeon, it's going it's to cause ripples through the whole hospital. And in the end, she just said, I can't, I couldn't live with myself without saying it. So she yelled, stop, <laughs> just before the surgeon started cutting. And of course, you know, he took, he took it fine. He just stepped back and said, you know, thank you for letting me know. And, and, it, and it was a fantastic outcome because the patient got their second scrub so you know you reduced your infection rate um, and everybody was happy and it and it also if you think about it reinforced that if something similar happens the next time perhaps a nurse who was very junior but but observed that situation will think hey you know if, if if something like that happens to me this is a great place to work because I can volunteer that information and I won't be shouted at yeah absolutely and I think um I think some of that is about maintaining the kind of prime focus isn't it which is uh, it sounds a bit naive in a way of me to say, but it's supposed to be the, the patient, right? Um, and, and everything else should be built around that. So, um, um, and in terms of recognising the the kind of importance of human factors and non-technical skills in clinical practice, um, we've obviously said that in veterinary medicine this is still very, very early days, but has there been, and we, we've touched on some of the conversations already about human medicine, but has there been kind of significant levels of attention in human medicine or is it still very, very early days or...? It's very new. I mean, there was no papers on this prior to about 2003. So although that represents 10 years' worth of literature, that's still obviously really new compared to a lot of things. And a lot of the work that's coming out is only in the last five years, and and it's a snowballing area. I mean, when I first started looking into it, there was one or two papers on anaesthetists and on technical skills, and now there's dozens and dozens and dozens. So this is a rapidly growing area. I think the two areas of growth that I've noticed are an increase in training in non-technical skills. So there are training manuals and lists of behavioural guides drawn up and made available for um, resident-level training. So residents in all specialties are now beginning to receive specific formal training in these areas instead of just like you said before, the assumption that it's just about being good at your job mm. or it's just about being nice to people, which is something mm. that, that I feel happens quite a lot. <laughs> it isn't just about being nice to people. It is real important core strengths. And mm. that is being, being recognised in um, specialist training um, in, in human medicine. And the human factors, 
there's not quite as much there describing what's happening, but talking to medical trainees, again, that is filtering through in, at the training level and it filters through into medical curriculums that it's being discussed, it's being talked about, it's on the table, whereas it wasn't before. Excellent. And um, actually, I was going to ask you one question that came to mind. It's a bit personal, but... Um, you said that when you first started looking into this, was there something specifically that sort of prompted you to get interested in this area, or was it serendipity? Or yeah, I mean, I think I'd love to say it was a particular case because that would be more interesting, I think, to talk about. <laughs> but actually, as you say, I mean, my back, my background was as an anaesthetist. Um, but as you say, my 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 life has gone into an educational direction. And about two and a half years ago, I was at a training day at the Royal College of Anaesthetists, and I'd never heard of any of this prior to that point. I was considered myself quite up to date with the anaesthesia literature, but this was something that I wasn't aware of. Um, and I sat, the training day was about educating um, anaesthetists in the workplace. So it wasn't for vets, it was laid on by the Royal College of Anaesthetists, and it was aimed at people who train trainee anaesthetists. And there was a little 40-minute session on non-technical skills, and I kind of thought, well, this is weird. I don't really know what yeah. this is going to be. Yeah. And they started talking, and they started talking about the things I was talking about before, so having that knowledge of what's going on in every operating room, being able to sort of work in that ethos of being approachable and knowing that the nurses will come and ask you for help if they're stuck rather than being afraid of showing that they don't know the answer. Um, being able to predict what might happen to your case three or four hours down the line. Remembering to stick our head around the door of ICU to check that, first of all, they don't need our help, but also that they're ready for some of our patients and, and, and that they know that we might have difficulty and that, that everybody works together. And the things about you know maintaining your, your, your up-to-date knowledge and things like that. And I just sat in that room listening to this, and two thoughts crossed my mind. First was, wow, it's cool that this is a thing, <laughs> that, this, that this deserves 40 minutes in yeah. a two-day training day, because I'd never heard anybody devote teaching yeah. time to that before. And I felt that that was something that I felt was important to my job, but no one had ever said... Liz, the strengths you might have in this area are really important to your job. It was always more about, you know, the other stuff. Yeah. And the second thing that crossed my mind was, I need to adapt this for vet students. Mm. Because although this is something that has developed in the medical specialisms, I feel it's so relevant for vets. And the nice thing is, you know, vets work in a surgical team. They work in an anaesthesia team. They deal with busy emergencies like emergency clinicians do. Mm. Um, they're involved with nursing teams a lot. And so, so many of these skills were so relevant to vets. And I can remember sitting in that room thinking, I was shocking at this yeah. as a new graduate yeah. vet. You know, I had no empathy. I couldn't talk to clients well. Um, I was probably terrible at working with the nurses. And I thought, if we can get some of this into the veterinary curriculum so our vet students have the benefit of hearing about it before yeah. they become vets, yeah. this could have a huge impact on, you know, on how well they work, on how much they enjoy their job, in their patient management. No, absolutely. And um, we'll talk at the end about sort of what um, kind of training or teaching opportunities are, are available here. I guess... Um, I'm always very, you know, conscious with this podcast or in general about not just talking about all the background stuff, but sort of posing the question that that's all very well and good, 
but what can we actually do to try and kind of account for the impact that all of this stuff has on patient safety? And so what can one do on a daily basis, essentially, to say, well, look, this is how... And, and we'll, we'll touch on this in terms of educational opportunities, but just in kind of summary, like, if I'm, if I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this podcast and I haven't heard these things before, and I'm a vet in practice already, and maybe I've been graduated for a while and I'm working... Am I supposed to go back to work tomorrow with some kind of epiphany moment and go in kind of just being a different person? Or what, what can I actually try and do to, to start accounting for the impact these things have on patient uh, safety and outcome, which I'm going to steal from you, by the way. That's <laughs> um, like a sure, that's a big question. question. Know, it's an enormous summar- question. Summarise it no, down. I mean, it? I think that, um, as, you, as you know, I've run this as a CPD course for vets. And I've only run it once. Um, it started last year, and it, and it was great. It's being run again um, next year. But one of the things that I was very nervous about when I started is I didn't really know how appealing this was going to be for people to listen to um, because it can be quite challenging because mm. people think, well, I, yeah, I, I'm a good communicator <laughs> or I don't need to be told how to run my team. Um, and then as people began to chip in and say where they felt their weaknesses were and what they wanted to get out of the course, I all of a sudden felt as though I was expected to be some kind of management trainer <laughs> um, or life coach, and I'm really not at all either of those things. I don't have expertise in helping people with their time management yeah. or in helping people with their stress management. But what i found is if people are aware that as I said before, it's a thing, all of a sudden it, it validates it in people's minds, I think, and, and, and all of a sudden they become not ashamed of thinking about it or, or not feeling that you know being stressed is just a hassle and you have to think about it by yourself and manage it. But by putting a stamp on it and saying this is something that is important to patient safety and outcome and is something that is, that is exciting and is forming parts of training, mm. even if people can't go through the training you begin to really become aware of it in your day-to-day life. And every time I sit and prepare something on this, whether it's a paper or, or you know, a teaching course or anything, I then suddenly begin to think of recent cases that I've involved with, usually where I've done badly. So when I was writing a course recently, I started thinking, gosh, I really shouldn't have given that dose of that drug to that nurse verbally and never checked you know that 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 should you know that that was breaking policy and you know we have the the rule that the anesthetic doses should be written down on a sheet for a reason and and you just kind of think of all of the things that you've done recently that that show weaknesses perhaps in non-technical skills or you know or how you were influenced by some of the human factors and i think even that can start improving um, your abilities in them one of the real buzzwords in in veterinary and medical education is reflection mm. and you know reflection means different things to different people and 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 it has a you know people don't like it because they think it's sitting down and doing navel gazing and writing about <laughs> themselves and it, you know it, it's hard but um even if you don't sit and write it down and have a real kind of reflective think if you're aware of some of these things and then you notice it either while you're doing it or after you've after you've managed the case and you and you kind of think back because you're suddenly aware of these things, then that is reflection and that's reflective learning. 
And just by way of being aware of these things, you can then start on thinking about how you can minimise their impact and what you can do about them. And I guess we, we said already, but um, I, I suppose it's obvious really, but in terms of the, the potential um, positive impact that can have, I guess we, we do really need to have a sort of more of a broad-based, clinical, clinic-wide acceptance with the, of engaging with these kinds of things, really, because I think it's hard to be a single individual that is trying to do this when your colleagues are not, because yeah. you're either kind of put out as some kind of weirdo <laughs> or some kind of obsessive or, or something other than actually that what you're trying to do might actually mm. be important. So it's sort of, I think, it, it requires everybody to understand the importance of this and the multiple reasons for why it's important and we've sort of touched on them already. Yeah and I think in fairness to everybody we don't have the data at the moment and that's something that I'm really interested by. There is the data in the human medical literature, you know there are the case reports and there are the people's commentaries writing about incidents that they've been involved with but at the moment we don't have the veterinary data and it's quite understandable in an evidence-based world we don't want to make huge changes especially if that's going to be something that requires more time out of the curriculum or is lengthy to get involved with or costs to go on a CPD course if we don't have the data to show that it's important for vets but one thing that struck me is that you know, whenever I talk about this to people, like I get data, I get mm, people's examples. Um, I'm beginning to collect loads of, of really fantastic examples. And it isn't just about bad things. It's not just about mistakes. It's about, you know, I noticed this and, you know, I worked on this. And then the nurses have noticed that I'm much stronger in this area. And, you know, they're more comfortable working with me. So we are beginning to get that, that data and that um, kind of case report based information that I think is really going to help with um, the general you know, buy-in of this as being important across the profession. And um, I want to move on and, and talk about professionalism, but before we do, um, one of the questions when you were saying about having the cases and the data, um, one of the things that obviously they are and have to be very careful about in human medicine when they're discussing cases is making sure that they comply with rules that I can't remember the name of, but basically so that they don't disclose, you know, private confidential information and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of the times when these sort of conversations happen on the internet, they're in the context of made-up hospitals with made-up patients, but they're sort of feeding off real-life examples. And so I guess, do, do we have to be, um, you know, careful about that kind of thing when we're talking about actual incidents? Of course we are do. There, are there rules? Yeah, that... yeah I mean, of course. I When I... Um ask people for this information obviously people are telling me about their cases which is very personal to them um, I'm always amazed how willing people are to share these details because obviously nobody likes to be involved with something that's gone wrong mm. um, you know a lot of these have involved um, clients that were obviously very very upset um, and I think we have to be very aware that not only are we getting the permission from the vets to use their cases in training, but also we haven't had the permission from the client because mm. that's you know that's two or three steps down the line, and so we have to be really careful that you know that, that we're talking about it firstly in a very positive way, so we're not talking about anybody being to blame, mm. but we're using them in a very educational way, and of course everything is you know always completely anonymous and confidential, and we're using general strands and themes from people's examples rather than you know 
very tight specifics of cases because that you know it's simply not fair on either the vet or or the client or anybody else that was involved do you you happen to know if there are um obviously we're in the uk and do you happen to know if there are kind of rcvs guides to professional conduct things that have any sort of implication on discussing cases sure i mean obviously we are bound by client confidentiality we can't just pass on details of clients Mm. um I obviously, because this is such a sensitive area and I am involved with people's mistakes all the time, I do constantly have my hotline to mm-hmm. the, you know, to the ethics and law <laughs> <laughs> lecturer. Um, and, you know, we, we just have to make sure that, that everything is always, yeah. always anonymous and always dealt with very sensitively. And there's, there's the law that, you know, the fact that we can't pass on client details and obviously we can't talk about clients on social media sites and things like that. Um, but there's also just our professional conduct as well, and that you know that it that it we would be breaking professional conduct even if we weren't breaking the law by talking about these cases in a in a disrespectful way or a, or a blameful way. So I think there's the two parts: there's yeah. there's staying within the law, but there's also staying professional. And that leads us beautifully on to <laughs> the final bit, by complete chance, um, which is I wanted to talk about um, the word professionalism. And I guess, again, what role that might have in the context of of patient safety and outcome. Um, I guess for a lot of people, when they hear the word professionalism, it probably conjures up in their minds what they think that word means. And I guess it would be helpful if you could explain perhaps what a sort of more traditional understanding of professionalism might be. And then kind of what a more modern, if you like, take on the concept might be, or at least a more modern take as it's being used or discussed in the context of human medicine. Sure. And I suppose then, you know, how we might apply that to veterinary medicine. Yeah. Do we have another hour? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, if you want. (laughs) No, so professionalism, as you quite rightly say, it was a great sum up, is, you know, has all sorts of connotations with it. And I think even more so the word unprofessional Mm. has a lot of connotations with it. And we hear it about sportsmen and we hear it about you know all sorts of celebrities and everything we hear it it's such a common word in in day-to-day life um the sort of traditional or some people describe it as nostalgic which i love so the nostalgic sense of professionalism within medicine is that sense of the doctor who um his entire because I suppose it would be his going backwards, but his or her entire way of practicing medicine is almost completely founded on altruism. And nostalgic or traditional definitions of professionalism are very, very rooted in being altruistic. So you have that self servitude to the patient all of the of the doctor's needs are less than that of the patient whether that means that you're up all night or you're always on call you're always available Um, but it also means slightly more modern things like being free of conflict of interest so not using a drug because the drug company took you out for a nice lunch and that kind of thing so the um the traditional view of, of professionalism is is sort of that very core what it means to be a doctor showing empathy to your patients really looking after them having that bond and that began to creep into medical education sort of in parallel in the US and the UK and there was a bit of a 
controversy, I suppose, because some people felt, why are we, why are we teaching this? Surely it should be implicit. Everybody yeah. knows they should be good and they should be a good person and they should be free of conflicts of interest and you shouldn't be disappearing off at five o'clock if your patient still needs you and things like that. But actually, it began to have a little bit of a, of a turbulent time as the medical students started saying, well, hang on, you're teaching us that we have to always be altruistic and always show empathy and always do the right thing. But here you are talking about the patient behind their back mm. or shouting at somebody in the corridor. Mm. Or um, there's another term which I love, which, um, you know, is tribalism between different specialties and, and the students would see you know the, the, the one set of, of specialists um, you know talking badly about another set and, and they kind of said well why are we being taught professionalism by these people and being <laughs> assessed by these people when they're not behaving in the way that we classically think of as being the professional um, and I think the other um, sort of slight input into that is as the patient safety movement has started to gather pace and all the things that we've been talking about, there was a, a body of a, a voice that started questioning professionalism because they said, hang on, being a professional is about being an elite. It's about having that position in society. And, and traditionally, that's what being a professional meant, that mm. you, your side of the social contract was that you would always be there for your patient and you would um, you know, put their needs higher than yours. But what you got back for your side of the social contract was a monopoly over your services. No one else is allowed to be a doctor. Self-regulation. So if a doctor makes a mistake, they're usually not hauled up in front of the courts. They're judged by their peers. Um, and, of course, a position in society that comes with a decent salary and you know, respect and everything else. So, and people began to say, well, we don't really think that elitist view of, of a profession really sits well with all the things that we're talking about, about flattened hierarchies and everybody being a team member and communicating well. And, you know, and, and maybe actually this sense of professionalism doesn't sit well in, in the current movement to promote you know, equality and, and, and teamwork and everything else. So there's still um, the core that, of, you know, of course we should always show empathy, of course we should be altruistic. So those things aren't disappearing. But the more recent literature on professionalism, which I think really fits, is that it's a lot more complicated. So, for example, when the students see um, faculty members in a teaching hospital behaving in a way that they view as being very unprofessional, to try and think about that in the context and the environment of, mm. of everything that's going on in, mm. with, that, with that doctor and with that patient. So... You know, we know that making a medical decision or a veterinary decision is impacted by what is the best thing for the patient, but it's also impacted by what, what can we afford to do, what are we allowed to do, what's our hospital policy, um, you know, what the client wants us to do, which might not be the same thing as what is best for the patient. And so it then becomes rather muddy and very complicated and, and sometimes very difficult to say right versus wrong in how we behave. Um, and there was a great example in some of the medical literature about a junior doctor who was asked on a busy emergency shift to examine a female patient who was quite distressed on a trolley in the corridor mm. because there was no, no consulting rooms available. 
And the junior doctor felt very uncomfortable and was really cross with his senior consultant for asking him to do this. He felt that he couldn't say no because that was his boss and that's the line of command. But he really didn't want to examine this woman in the corridor. And he was, you know, really got quite aggrieved that, you know, I'm being told to behave so unprofessionally. We should never be examining female patients. From what I remember, it was an intimate type examination. We should never be doing this to a distressed patient in a hallway. And then later on in the article, you get the consultant's view, which is, you know, I hate the fact that I can't afford another consulting room. You know, my budget is such that I have to examine these patients in the hallway. I really don't want to do it. I'm giving a mixed message to my junior doctor, but I'm really worried that that patient's unstable. Mm. And if I don't, you know, if I don't get her examined, we might miss something. And um, it's vital that she's examined now, even though this is a terrible thing to do. And that, to me, is a more realistic view of professional reasoning and professional decision-making than the slight black-and-white, you know, patients um, serving the patient's needs to the letter and altruism, because often it's very difficult to work out what that route is. So I think, I think listening to you, I think there's, there's two or three things I want to say. The first was it sounds like some of the traditional um, nostalgic views of professionalism were perhaps a bit in contradiction with the acknowledgement of human factors and their impact, because yeah. it was sort of yeah. like you just suck those up in a way. <laughs> the, the other thing I was thinking was in that example you've just given us latterly about the junior doctor, um, do, do you think the issue there was a lack of communication at that time? But I suppose the flip side of that is, do, one, does one have the time to have that communication at that time? But I guess it, it sounds like maybe if there'd been a conversation there, then the junior doctor may have felt less uncomfortable um, and, and the other thing is, I was thinking kind of overall, it, this is going to be a rubbish sort of summary, but it sounds to me like we're almost saying that prof- modern professionalism in clinical practice is about or the most professional people, if you can say such a thing, are those people that are able to kind of, I guess, balance all the different factors that go into clinical practice to the best of their ability, if you like, really. Sure. Um, I mean, it's still very difficult to piece out professionalism mm. and I'm, you know, I, I, I kind of believe that professionalism um, is a generic thing but also needs, needs to be moulded to fit our own individual requirements and I kind of imagine a, a, a patient safety and outcome model of professionalism that, that does highlight some of the things I've been talking about so, for example, looking at the, you know, the the, the aspect of empathy which has been in professionalism you know for decades and decades actually that could be a really important part of patient safety professionalism because if you show empathy to your staff and you build this culture of empathy within your team then somebody is more likely to say I'm too tired to do this case well. Mm. Can I either have an assistant or, you know, is there something that we can do rather than living in that slightly um, cliched traditional view of a hospital where um, you say, well, I'm tired, but it would be unprofessional not yeah. to carry on. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry, I've lost Randa, I think, a little bit of your question. But no, no, yes, no, no, I mean, we need I mean, to... I think this, but, but that in any way, that just, that, all that does really is to kind of highlight, I guess, the... Um, the fact that that sort of black and white thing is not applicable anymore. And I, I guess something else, I, I want to just end the podcast by talking about sort of 
educational teaching opportunities in veterinary medicine. But before I do, one of the things I was thinking about with this kind of flattening of the hierarchy is it has to be a two-way street, right? So when there, when there was and in places where there still is not just an kind of overt hierarchy, but one that actually translates into daily activity, if you like. Um, more senior person says do, less senior person does, right? Easy. Um, from the point of view of more senior person, if more senior person should now be less like that, then more junior person needs also to participate in this relationship, right? And I think that's one of the things that certainly as I've progressed from being an intern here 10, 11 years ago to now being a faculty member, and, and also some of these conversations have been going on about the ways that we should behave differently to maybe people used to and stuff, that, that there has to be a two-way street then. It has to be a kind of the team has to accept that everybody's going to participate because otherwise you do find yourself sometimes having to resort to traditional models where you're basically saying, well, just do this because I told you to do it because you're like... Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's yeah. a, kind of, it's a no, constant absolutely. thing with me every day. I'm always thinking yeah. about this because you have different people and you're trying to get them to do what you think is the... and you hope that they also think is mm. the right thing. And um, I think so. I think I find that, that whole kind of conversation really interesting. Having been brought up myself in probably a more kind of traditional model of hierarchy and stuff just in, in my education. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it can't just be a case of everybody goes off and does their own thing <laughs> and everybody, you know, if two people on the team disagree about how a patient's managed and, 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 you know, there is no fundamental hierarchy, then I guess that would never, ever be resolved and the yeah. patient would never get cared for. So it has to be sort of ingrained in the culture that um, that there are times when you know, that the trust dynamic within the team is there yeah. and that even though you have very much a, a culture and, a, and an opportunity for all members to say, why are we doing this or, you know, shouldn't we be doing it this way, that, you know, that as you say, there are, there are times when um, that, that it has to adopt more of that, yeah. that hierarchy structure. And, it, and, it, and it's really interesting, actually, that um, when the non-technical skills frameworks have been examined within operating theatres um, the teamwork component of it through things like what's happened with um, surgical checklists improving team com communication and you know having fantastic effects on um, patient mortality rates and things like that it's the it's the flattening of the of the of the hierarchy and the teamwork that's that's proved to be the sort of real cool buzz bit of, <laughs> of, of, of that environment and yet with um, emergency and critical care it's it's fascinating that actually of all the non-technical skills it's the leadership one that's come out as being the most important mm. and that if you show strong leadership skills in a crisis which is exactly as you say being able to say in a way that doesn't upset people and is very clear uh, uh, you know and, and, and recognizes everybody's roles can you, you know, you go and do this, this is your job, this is your job, this is your job, is a lot more important. So it absolutely depends on, on the environment and the case and, and the specialty, which, again, makes it, makes it so interesting. interesting. Excellent. Um, so I wanted to just end by asking you about kind of teaching um, in this area. So I guess I wanted to start with, um, with, student, with veterinary students and to ask you whether this is stuff that we've started teaching in any kind of formal way here at the RVC, and I guess also whether you know whether other veterinary schools are sort of dipping their toes in this area. Yes, I mean, it's, um, it's come from above. The RCVS, um, through their requirements, say that we have to include um, 
things other than pure clinical knowledge and um, practical skills in our curriculum. So, for example, I don't think there's any veterinary school now that doesn't have communication skills within their curriculum. So that's one example of something that's very, very formal. All of the students go through two sets of communication skills training um, to manage things like client communication and difficult client situations and things like that. What we're trying to do is expand on... Um, you know, you'll notice that I, I didn't really touch on the vet-client relationship at all, even though that's obviously very, very important. Um, so we're trying to build it beyond that and take into account all sorts of things to do with the veterinary team. And that's something that's, that really is in its infancy and is growing, mm. um, but something that we are trying to filter down. And, and I'm very aware that it shouldn't be something that we take the students away for a week um, have it, and have this little isolated week in the curriculum you know, be vet med year four, term two, week five, or whatever yeah, is yeah, non-technical sure, skills, sure. and they, you know, they go and do a week of that and have an exam on it, and then go back to what they perceive as being the the life and death fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's much more real and has a much greater impact if it integrates itself all the way through the curriculum. So. For example, we don't do this, but what I would love to see is that every time somebody does a cage round about a difficult case in final year rotations, that we don't just talk about the treatment options. We also talk about the implications um, of something to do with human factors or non-technical skills or professionalism. And you're not going to cover the whole lot in every case. No, sure. But, you know, talking about how would you manage this if the client was, you know, fundamentally opposed to euthanasia, for example, because that's something that, you know, is, is a difficult situation, but we don't really have any training on. Yeah. Or, you know, how would you manage the ethics of this case? Do you think that this is an appropriate thing to do or not? So just bringing in all of these things, because, again, I don't think it's necessarily formal training i haven't given anybody any formal training in stress management but as soon as we start recognizing the impact of stress it then does filter into your life so if we if we had a case that we talked to with the students um you know when we said look this you know when this came in it was it was crashing and the clients were very upset and there was something else going on in icu as well and you know do you think you would feel stressed managing that patient if it was you and you know hopefully the students would recognize that they would and and what the manifestations of that are whether it's that you don't manage the case as well or whether it's that you become snappy with your team and your team get upset and don't function you know just there's all sorts of things we can bring in but it's all about just raising awareness and getting the students to think and, and reflect on it and then because um, I think we spoke you know a while ago uh, I was saying that I think one of the things that that's really important is that um, people beyond students if you like uh, start to have some kind of training discussion about these areas and I suppose that applies completely to staff in a teaching hospital like ours where part of the responsibility is to teach the students and so I, I guess for people like me, but also for vets and nurses in practice as well, if they're sitting listening to this thinking, well, how can I be exposed to this kind of stuff? Is there any teaching that's going on about human factors and, and the implications of them, non-technical skills, professions and so on, that's available to kind of vets and nurses in practice at the moment? Sure. I mean, there, there isn't a great deal, as you can imagine, um, but... Our CPD unit run here, run um, the, the four-week online course um, that I spoke about at the beginning in professional skills. And I think that that is a really good taster of, of everything that it involves. And my experience of that has been that 
people that have been involved with that have then felt confident to kind of relay that through their practice, um, make changes, and um, just that that kind of real initial increase in awareness and talking about things and and, and thinking about cases. We do a lot of um, people talking about their own cases and then looking at how non-technical skills impacted those cases. And I'm really, really careful that we always talk about the positives as well as the negatives and that how really good communication skills has helped a case. And then what a lot of those vets have said is that they've then taken that into their practices um, to incorporate into their morbidity mortality rounds. So vets are required to do some form of clinical auditing if they want to reach that, that aspect of RCVS approval. And making that more useful experience to the vets and an educational experience to them rather than just a tick box exercise means that we can bring in some of this stuff. Um, You know, I I talk to vets about how to run case-based teaching rounds. We don't tend to call them morbidity mortality rounds because, again, it has very negative connotations. It suggests you can only talk about things that went wrong. But, um, you know, we we kind of take that framework and, and say, you know, look, with a little bit of of education through things like, you know, my webinar plus course, you can then filter that out into your own practice through um, case-based rounds talking about um, anything that might have gone wrong, but but expanding that to not just a patient that died and you don't know why, but also to, you know, I had this client and, and they were mad and, and thinking, you know, back about it, what could we have done differently? Or or even, you know, as, as you pointed out, um, about the, the junior doctor and the senior doctor, cases like that are so valuable to talk about because, um, you know, you can always find ways that things could have been done differently. And as you say, the communication was probably lacking and so, we can so use pro- these case as, things. I think the clinical order thing is, is obviously really important. And, and as you say, it's sort of something that, that people are engaging with more and more, either through choice or through compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, but acknowledging that that doesn't just have to be the medical the science yes, but exactly. it can actually be all kinds of other things that can factor in yes. and I also like your, your, your emphasis throughout the podcast really on not just focusing on negative because I suppose when I was listening to you I was thinking it's sort of a debrief isn't it but you can have a debrief about something that went very very well yes. not just about something that didn't go so well and so it's identifying times when I, I often say to our staff you know like we kicked ass today and it sounds a bit but, but that's what I mean like actually days when you've You've all bunkered down and things have gone brilliant and you've worked together very well and, of course, things are, the, odd, you mm. know, the odd thing's going to go wrong. But when you kind of come out the other end of it and you think, actually, we did really well today, but we never really take any further than that. We never sit down and deconstruct it in any way. We just kind of say, well, we did really well today. Yeah, that's right. Um, it would be so, so useful to think about why it went really well and to, yeah. to reinforce in people's heads to make sure that happens again. Awesome. And in terms of other kind of people that are teaching in this area, if you like, apart from you, I mean... It, are there any vet, other veterinary people that are doing it or are they non-veterinary people or is it really that early that there isn't really anything else? I don't know of any other veterinary training or um, you know, lectures at CPD sessions or anything like that. Um, Do you suspect that we're on a trajectory in that direction? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I know that some, um, you know, there's a lot of professionalism work coming out of Nottingham. Um, there's a group that are really active looking at professionalism there um, and Yes, I mean this is such a this is such a hot area, and um, anybody that reads, you know, the, the the medical or the patient safety literature is going to to be exposed to this. So um, I think the more that it's talked about, the better, because then, you know, we, we will get that vital data. I mean, we have such good data from 
you know, from, from human medicine on things like the impact of checklists on team behaviour and the impact on complication rates and things like that. And, and we don't have them for vets. And, and yes, I'd love it if everybody came on my CPD course, of course, that would be brilliant. But, um, you know, but, but just a cultural thing, it would be great if we could get more out there and so that we do have more reports coming into the literature on how this can be beneficial to patient management for vets. Um, so, look, before we finish, really promise you the last question because I've kept you for a very long time. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do with these podcasts is to make sure that people are listening to them or to try and make sure that people listening to them can say... I can see how the content of this podcast applies to me or is helpful in my environment. And we've already talked a lot about this today, but I guess could you just round off by summarising, again, why you believe that if I'm a vet or a nurse in practice or I'm a student going through my clinical years, essentially, why should I be paying attention to this podcast or is this the kind of thing that you go, or whatever? (laughs) Why is it important in a nutshell? I guess, not, you, not you hour, to, uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess you have to uh, you have to buy into it or you don't and um, you know at the moment you know the, the only kind of real hard sell I have for people who want evidence as to why it's important does come from the medical reports of sort of unprofessional behavior or fatigue or things like that having negative implications but if people can can kind of accept that as a given just for a moment. What I would encourage people to do is is to kind of just pick up on one thing that I've talked about today, whether it's teamwork or communication or managing your stress or what to do when you're tired. Um, A lot of vets talk to me about how they find it easier to comment on other people's cases than, you know, than think about your own. And that's, you know, got some interesting connotations as well. But just, just to kind of take one thing and then... Keep that in the back of your mind through your next week of cases and just see how often that impacts either positively or negatively on patient management. And I'm, you know, I'm not expecting everybody to have a patient death in the next week that you say, well, that was because of failure in human factors. But it's amazing how many near misses I recognize when I start thinking about this stuff. Um, and, And that that does reinforce it and you know even without any cpd that begins to make you better fantastic and, and hopefully it becomes a um self-fulfilling steamrolling type of situation so and look that's fantastic and um, and thank you so much and i'm sorry that <laughs> i kept you for so no, long that's okay that's fine um so to the listeners as always do, do feel free to get in touch and um provide feedback and you can email me directly at sjasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page um, or you can tweet us at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag SAClinPod. And if you have any kind of questions or anything that I can go and, and talk to Liz about for you, then, then do let me know. And um, until next time, then do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.